<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tim Armstrong is the CEO of AOL, and he's going to be the CEO of the combined AOL-Yahoo company once Verizon is done with its merger. But before he joined AOL, he was actually a high-powered executive at Google, and he helped the company grow from about 700000 in revenue per year to now billions of dollars per quarter. So this also means that Tim Armstrong is one of the few people who actually knows what it's like to be interviewed for a job by Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. You know, they basically said at the beginning of the meeting, after a few questions, they basically said, we're not really sure what to ask you. Ask yourself the questions. Like, what questions would you ask yourself uh, if you were us? So I, you know, basically said, look, I'm a very direct person, very honest. Here's what I would ask, you know, the following questions. And, and I thought that was interesting. I, I realized later after working with them that that's a, that wasn't an anomaly. That's what's one of their tactics. In this episode of Success, How I Did It, Artung shares how he became a high-powered executive and how he leads his teams. He also shares advice that his dad gave him the night before he started at AOL, and advice that he gives his kids and anyone else who wants to become a big-time CEO someday. I'm your host and BI's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. Tim Armstrong is the CEO of AOL, and he'll be the head of the combined AOL-Yahoo company Oath, I believe, when the deal closes. Um, prior to AOL, he built Google's ad products. He's basically responsible for the brainchild of AdSense. And uh, that he built the ad team from scratch. So we're really happy to have you, Tim. Allison, good to see you. And thanks for having me on a rainy New York day. Of course. I appreciate you making the trek. It is not fun out there. Um, so I want to go all the way back to the beginning of your career. Um, sounds like you were always entrepreneurial. You, I remember the story about you making a strawberry farm successful or something in your college days. Yeah, when I was uh, growing up, I, I always had the entrepreneurial bug, and, and there were multiple things that I did when I was younger in my uh, kind of middle school, high school age. But one of the things that a lot of people tell the story is there was, a, with a friend from college, there was a strawberry farm that uh, the bank owned. Um, I don't know if the, the farmer had uh, lost it to the bank, but there was a strawberry farm, and uh, we went to the bank, and they weren't using the farm. So we said, could we take over the farm for the summer and do a U-Pick strawberry uh, it'd be a lot less work for us and uh, probably a lot more profitable. And uh, so we did a U-Pick strawberry farm, you know, from a farm we didn't own and cut a deal with the bank uh, to do it. And we had hundreds of customers drive up and go pick their own strawberries. And it ended up being a very successful venture and a lot of fun. Yeah, not a bad uh, gig for a college kid. It was, it was very fun. Awesome. And so then, so you graduate and you have a short stint in finance. Is that right? 
Yeah, well, I when I, right when I graduated from college, I actually taught um, a program called the Explorer Program at Wellesley College. And then uh, after that, that was for the summer, I went to an investment bank uh, in Boston. And um, I was there for about three or four months, and I realized that you know banking was not something for me. And so I went to my boss and said, you know, I think you should let me go. Uh, or we, we, and you volunteered it, to basically be fired. Yeah, I just said I said I don't think this is the career for me, and and uh, I should do something else. And they said, no, why don't you stay? It seems like you you know you could do a good job here over time. And I said I want to go do something else, so I I left and ended up starting a newspaper in Boston out of that experience. And that that that's really what got me. If you look back to the seminal moment for me, what got me into the why we're sitting here today, it was really that decision. Right. Yeah. It all seems kind of like building towards. It's no wonder you're the head of a media company basically now um so so bib was the beginnings in boston newspaper that you started with and the way you got into that i guess you had been cold calling executives just hoping they would talk to you and nobody would talk to you unless you were a reporter well i was uh, calling um people in boston i was really trying to just figure out what i want to do and learn about different you know careers and um i again had thought that banking would be something i'd be really interested in but when i realized it wasn't i was like i should go do research and find out really what i want to do and so I would call um, different executives in Boston, CEOs of companies, and see if they would meet with me. And um, I, not many of them would. Uh, and uh, I called one of a very large uh, financial institution in Boston. And the woman was very nice on the phone, uh, the CEO's assistant. And she said, you know, the only people who really cold call here who get through to the CEO are journalists. And, um, and so I later that night went back and I was talking to my roommate I was living with. And I said, you know what we should do? We have all our friends in the 20s. Everyone's flopping jobs or figuring out what they want to do. Why don't we start a publication to like go get advice from all of these people and give it to the Boston's filled with young people graduating from all the schools in Boston? So um, we decided to launch the magazine. The magazine was targeted at exactly my demographic back then, and I didn't know anything about publishing newspapers or magazines. But we basically launched from scratch. We sold everything we owned: cars, bikes, surfboards, the whole thing. We bought a Quadra Apple Quadra 650 computer, and uh, we basically learned how to publish from scratch and print from scratch, distribute from scratch. And in that journey, I learned probably the most I've ever learned just about what a business is from start to scratch. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. It was really hard. Um, we did an okay job at it, not great. And we ended up buying a second newspaper, which ended up was, was a better uh, idea that was in Cambridge and Harvard Square. So that was the that was the the launch of my phone calls to newspaper ownership in a very short time period. Yeah, well, it sounds like you never had a problem cold calling people, which is like sales 101. <laughs> yeah. So it's not really surprising that you ended up having a career in that eventually. But you were telling me a funny story before this about how Casey Affleck used to work. You used was he worked with you? Yeah. So I when I we had the bought the second newspaper, um, which was called the Square Deal. And if if you went to Harvard back in those days, you used it. It had coupons in the back. It told you what was happening around town in Cambridge Square. And we hired um, people, kids from Harvard, to hand them out to other Harvard students. And I was at a dinner a couple of years ago, and uh, Casey Affleck had said to me, "Hey, do you remember me? You know, do I look familiar?" And I said, "Yeah, of course you're familiar." You know, and I said, "You, you always strike me as very familiar." He said, "You don't remember, but I used to work at uh, the Square Deal and hand out the newspapers uh, for you." And uh, I mean, obviously, he's done really well, and he's not handing out newspapers anymore for sure. He's got won an Academy Award, so. That was a fun story and a good, good, good memory back to the old days. Yeah, not a bad place for him to start. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so you 
find that the internet is here and you go to MIT and you see this kind of presentation and you kind of switch gears a bit. What happened there? Yeah, I had uh, another friend of mine owned uh, a store in Boston um, named Peter Dunn and he had a store called Cool Beans, which was a Grateful Dead store. And he was very networked in the Cambridge and MIT community. And and, uh, he said, hey, there's some people coming. They have this new thing called an internet browser. So we're going to meet down at MIT and, and you can see it. And I went down and um, literally within one minute of them turning it on and showing what the browser did, I uh, looked at my friend and said, I'm selling my newspaper as soon as I get back to the office and I'm going to go do this thing. This is 100 times easier, faster, and more scalable than what we're doing in the newspaper business. And so I I literally went back, um, called my parents on the way home from that meeting, and I said, I'm selling the newspaper. I'm going to try to move to an internet environment. And um, so I started, we started actually trying to put our newspapers online. This is 1994, I think. Um, And then long story short, um, you know, I I moved pretty quickly. We sold our, our, our share in the newspaper back to another publisher in Boston. And then I went off to start doing internet things, um, which was a lot of fun. So you rise as this great salesperson within the first internet magazine, I believe. And um, the company you end up later working for gets acquired by Disney. Yes. So I, uh, after the newspaper, I went to go work out. The only thing I found right away at that time, because not many people doing internet things, was uh, IDG, the big tech publisher, was was launching the first internet magazine, which was a magazine about the coming internet. And um, so I went to work there in those travels. Um, it's an incredibly long story, but I, I went to an event with uh, the founders of NASCAR, the France family, and the Frances got up and gave a presentation about where they thought this internet thing was going. I talked to the uh, to the to NASCAR family, and uh, they basically said, "Look, there's this company, Paul Allen, starting a company on the West Coast called Starwave, which was the Microsoft's long- Paul Allen, right? yeah, Microsoft's Paul Allen." And they were um, the first real content company on the internet. So when I actually got back to Boston from that trip, I had a voicemail on my phone from Starwave. And they said, hey, we heard you're in Boston. We hear you're doing internet things and you're trying to do advertising and content on the internet. We have a company in Seattle. Would you like to come out and visit us? So I flew out to Seattle uh, did a day's worth of uh, interviews and um, got offered the job at the end of the day. And I went back, moved from Boston with a bag of clothes. I didn't know anything else at the time period and moved to Seattle and had an awesome experience out at Starwave. We launched ESPN.com, NFL.com, ABCnews.com, and uh, worked with a whole crew of people from all over uh, the U.S. who had moved there to really get into Internet content. And uh, that was an amazing experience. And then Disney bought us, um, and I ended up moving back to New York to work for uh, for Disney, helping them get their internet things off the ground, ESPN and ABC. So, from what I understand, you know, you're pretty young when you go out to Seattle. You're in your mid twenties, maybe, and and you're working with. Um, across platforms, which was a really early concept of TV plus digital plus all these things. And you're also working with the legacy TV sales guys who are like, you know, the old guys who've like worked their way up to the top. Like, how did they let you in? Why were you such a good salesman? Like, what did you figure out? Well, one is um, it, uh, when I was at Starwave in Seattle originally, I had done at the time period the largest deal on the internet that was ever done. So I did a, a million dollar deal back in like probably 1996 or 1997. And this is when most of the deals were were $10,000 deals. So I got on Paul Allen's radar screen. I ended up flying down to the Portland Trailblazers game with Paul Allen and some friends from Starwave. And then um, when Disney bought the company and I moved to New York, people knew about this deal. The, the deal I had done was with Rick Scott, who's now the governor of Florida, 
Um, he was the CEO of Columbia HCA, um, and he was did the first really truly large ad deal you know, at Starwave and for ESPN. So when I got to New York, I sort of had a reputation of like somebody who was uh, energetic and, and was uh, creative and doing deals. So I showed up in New York and, and I was um, really one of only a couple internet people there. So it was, uh, you know, I guess it was a little bit more like we were um, outside the box people who didn't fit into the normal way that everything was happening in New York and media. So they kind of took us everywhere. We were sort of like a it was a dog and pony show and, and we were the dog. And uh, so from that experience, I learned a lot from working at ESPN, which was an amazing company, uh, amazing people, and um, and got to spend a lot of time with people who are super knowledgeable about advertising and super knowledgeable about content. And um, so I became like their internet buddy. So that served you well because then Google came calling. And uh, Google at the time was this tiny startup. It wasn't even top of the search rankings, right? And they were barely making generating any revenue, I think. And so Amid Kurdistani, who's now the executive chairman of Twitter, calls you up. Right. And he's at Google at the time. What does so, he say? And what's that meeting like? So uh, Omid had called and uh, and through another woman I worked with at Starwave, actually. Um, and he said, can you meet me in New York City? So I met him at the Carlisle Hotel in, in New York on a rainy day, actually a rainy Friday. And... Uh, and we we basically hit it off right away. If you if you know Omid, he's he's one of the best humans on the planet and uh, one of the most engaging. So he he at that time you know uh, Google was into licensing software that was the main business model at that standpoint, um, and they were thinking about getting more into advertising. So Omid asked me a whole bunch of questions about what I thought, and um, I ended up. Um, going out to meet, having uh, breakfast with Sergey uh, out in Palo Alto, and um, and you know, kind of right away, I, I I actually had had another job offer at the time from a large gaming company to like had a, a unbelievable job actually, um, which would have at my age was like super enticing. But after meeting Omid and Larry and Sergey and and some other people from Google. It just, you could tell there was going to be magic there. And it wasn't exactly clear, clear what it was going to be, um, but decided to join Google. And, and that was, uh, you know, a great, great decision and a lot of fun and, and great, just an unbelievable experience. And again, super talented people. It was, it was a super highlight for me. Do you remember what that first meeting with Larry and Sergey was like? What is it like meeting the Google founders back then as they're growing it? Um, you know, I, uh, one of the things I don't think I've ever told this story, but, uh, when we had the first, when I had my first discussion with them, you know, they basically said at the beginning of the meeting, after a few questions, they just basically said, we're not really sure what to ask you. Ask yourself the questions, like what questions would you ask yourself, uh, if you were us? So I, you know, basically said, look, I'm a very direct person, very honest. Here's what I would ask, you know, the following questions. And, and I thought that was interesting. I, I realized later after working with them that that's a, that wasn't an anomaly. That's what's one of their tactics. Um, but, uh, you know, they were really driven. I mean, I think to this day, you know, Larry and Sergey are, are um, obviously very smart and, and very creative. They're very competitive also in a, in a good way. And, um, you know, I'd say they care a lot. I mean, I, I think at their size now and what they're doing, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, f- feedback on them and how people feel about them. But they're, at, at their heart, very good people, both of them. So when you get to Google, it's generating about $700,000 a year in ad revenue. And now, of course, it's like $25 billion a quarter. And so you really got in there and helped them figure out what ad products were going to work. And one of your brainchilds was AdSense, right? So how did you help develop that? It's now a multi-million, billion dollar quarter 
business for them. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, that happened at Google, that first of all, Salar Kamangar, who is the used to be the head of YouTube and, and was really the the brainchild behind AdWords and uh, a few other people that we worked with, really all it all kind of came together in a in a, in a very science sort of mad scientist way of how AdWords got off the ground and the, and the ad business did. But there were a whole bunch of us working on it and it had a good outcome on the AdWords side. And then one day a guy named John Firm actually who worked in our uh, ad sales group came and said, um, hey, you know, we have a whole bunch of customers that don't have budgets spent um, on search. They basically load all their budgets in. There's lots of room for other places they could run it, but we can't spend all their money. And by the way, you know, one of our publishers, which was at the time period, I think it was about.com, said, you know, is there any way for you guys to help us figure out how to make more money? And so we literally took a PowerPoint page, mocked up a content page and put AdWords boxes on it that were related to the content. And we took it into the Google meeting, you know, to, the, to the executive team meeting and said, hey, why don't we syndicate all of our ads onto content properties, which today doesn't sound like, uh, uh, you know, brain surgery, but... Um, but it was, it was a moment in the company's history, I think, where it, like, there were a whole bunch of people who didn't want to do it. They're like, we're a search company. Let's stay focused on search. You know, this doesn't make any sense. You know, ads, display ads don't really work. You know? And so there was a kind of a big argument back and forth. But at the end of the day, we got a group of engineers. We hired Kurt Abrahamson from Jupiter, who was the president of Jupiter, to come and run it. And we spent about a year in my group developing it and growing it. And then we turned it over to Susan Wojcicki, who's running YouTube now. Uh, took it over and ran it, and um, and then there was a pl Applied Semantics was a company that was bought by the product and engineering team. So that was another product that had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of founders to it, I guess, and a lot of success because a lot of energy got put into it. And one unt untold story about Google I should have gone back to is one of the reasons Google was successful in ads is because the the search licensing business went away. Yahoo bought Ink to Me. And so one of Google's major revenue lines kind of went away because search licensing went to a free model from a paid model. And that allowed a lot of the engineering talent at Google to go focus on ads. And I think without that type of a transition, you know, we never would have had the horsepower in terms of the intellectual capital and engineering and product. And, and you know, I think sometimes in business you get lucky and uh, what looked like a bad situation with the licensing business turned out to be an unbelievable big opportunity. And that's really what led to ad uh, AdWords and AdSense and, uh, you know, the double-click acquisition. There was lots of stuff like that that came out of that, you know, what, what looked like a tough situation originally turned out to be a boon for the entire company. So this works. You become like this god within Google managing this massive department. And then I was not a god within Google. <laughs> there were a lot of gods within Google. Uh, so there was a massively talented team there. Well, uh, unbelievable. That talent, may be yeah. true. But still, the head of Time Warner gives you a call, Jeff Bucus. He notices what you've built and what you've done. This is 2009. What made you intrigued to take a meeting with him? and to talk about the idea of AOL. Right. You know, a few things. I, I would go back to the, the reason I ended up going to um, Google was because it looked like there was a huge opportunity in the information about how people got information business and kind of putting information connected with where commerce happens was a big opportunity. You know, in the in the 2000, early in the 2000s, I had co-founded and funded a company with my college roommate, Luke Beatty, called Associated Content, which was more of a content company that got eventually got sold to Yahoo, actually. Um, but at my time at Google, basically, you know, I'd say after I was there for almost 10 years, I have a personal career philosophy, which is, you know, I think you should do 
you should continue to do something um, as long as you're learning quantum amounts of things in general. And I think the quantum learning is probably the most important attribute to people's careers to, to continue to grow. And at Google, it wasn't that I, was, I wasn't learning anymore, but my interest level over time had started to get really focused in on the content space and where uh, media was going and, um, you know, working on associated content a little bit. I was on the board for a while, you know, got me interested in where content was going. And then um, when Jeff Bukas called, you know, it was uh, it seemed like a unique opportunity. Um, I can go into my investing philosophy, but I'm also somebody who likes to invest. I, I think a lot of opportunities are opportunities because everyone can't see them. And I, if you can read something in the newspaper, it's probably not an opportunity anymore. And AOL was the exact opposite. It was something that everyone had kind of given up on. But they had a lot of resources, a lot of users, um, and they had a lot of talent. Uh, so it seemed like an opportunity if I was going to do something disruptive, there'd also be a big runway to do something disruptive because people, frankly, were counting it out. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, you have a choice to go to a startup to start something or you have a choice to do something at bigger scale. I wanted to do something at, at bigger scale. Um, and it was just an interesting asset. And, um, you know, it was, it was uh, probably going to be a windy path because it was inside of Time Warner. If we wanted to spin it out, we'd have to go through the whole process of spinning it out. And then we'd have to do all these changes to the company. And it was, it was just a very challenging experience. And I, that's what I wanted at the time period. So at the time when you're having this conversation, you're thinking about taking the job, there was a graveyard of AOL CEOs, basically. There was five, I think, within that decade. Like, how do you um, measure the risk, and how did you decide to jump, and how did you make sure you weren't the sixth in that graveyard? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I... I um I I don't I didn't want to take the job if I didn't think I can do it and I definitely had a lot of reflection time on that because you know um, you know the same thing a lot of these companies that have these situations have a lot of CEOs and they're all smart people like they they are good at their careers um, so I was kind of um, carefully thinking about it but on the other hand I thought you know what if this totally fails and it's the world's biggest failure you know really who cares like i'll probably learn more doing it and you know and you know i think a lot of people said to me why would you ever leave google why would you leave google and your reputation at google to go to do something like aol but i kind of thought about it the opposite which was you know if you wanted to have the most intense learning experience and apply a lot of the skills i had learned in the 10 or 15 years prior aol seemed like a great opportunity to do that um, and you know, my personality is more entrepreneurial and, and, and it just seemed like a, like an opportunity that although it had tons of risk, it also had tons of opportunity and it, you had to be willing. Like my dad said to me the night before I started, he said, you know, this is a, this is a burn the bridge moment. If you, if you fail at this, you're not, you can't walk backwards. So you should figure out how to always look forward. And I think that was a great piece of advice because that's essentially what we had to do over and over and over again. And how do you make a burn the bridge type decision? Like, how do you know you're making the right choice, especially as the leader of a huge company? Yeah, I think, you know, I, one, one thing is um, I, I went around, like when I took the AOL job, I, I had known a lot of CEOs before that, but I also traveled around to meet. I went on a little mini kind of uh, leadership roadshow before I actually started. I, we, I got announced that I was going to start, and then I had like some time before I actually started. And I spent a lot of time with a lot of different leaders um, who I respected, uh, who are big leaders across the across corporate America and some entrepreneurs. And, you know, essentially, 
I, I think your, your CEO job, you, you basically have to be okay with risk and you have to be okay with failure. As long as you're going, there's a, a, a saying, which is you have to fail towards a goal. Like as long as you're failing, if you know what the goal is, it's okay to fail in that direction. And that's kind of the advice I got from people. And, and I think on that road show, um, you know, I, I had a lot of people challenge me, like the best mentors I had are the, also the most challenging people. And on that roadshow, they asked me a lot of the questions I ended up facing, you know, further on. And I wasn't prepared for all of them, but I kind of knew what the role was and what the job was going to be. And, and on, you know, fortunately or unfortunately for AOL, a lot of that I learned on the job um, overall. So it was, uh, it was challenging. And when you come into a new job like that, do you need to bring your own team with you? Because that's something you did. You kind of cleared out house a little bit with the executive ranks, yeah. brought in some people from Google. Was that essential? Um, well, actually, what, when I first started, I brought a couple of people in. Maureen Sullivan, who's kind of president of Rent the Runway now, was the first person who came over with uh, from Google with me. And, uh, you know, what I told the AOL team was, look, uh, this is the team. Like, everyone's going to have their shot. Um, you know, we have to change what we're doing. Um, some of the changes, if you want to roll with them and, and stick with them, great. If this is not what you want to do, you know, raise your hand because we're going to go in a different direction. And I think over time, I, ended up, I did end up bringing um, a bunch of people in from uh, Google and, um, and other people as well. I, I would say looking back on it uh, overall, you had a very challenged company. We were doing very, just out of the gates, trying to spin a company out of a public company and take it public alone is a massive challenge. Forget about one that's in a downturn um, overall. So I think there was a whole group of us that were basically um, somewhat experienced, but not fully experienced in doing all the things that we were doing. So we were figuring it out on the fly. And I'd say, I bet if you went back and talked to a lot of those people, it was probably one of the best experience, hardest, but bet most learning experience um, overall, but if, if I went back to it now, I probably at my experience level would do the same thing. If I were doing it again now, I would probably you know take a step back and take a better account of my own skills of what I was really good at and not good at. Um, and I probably would have augmented the team slightly. Not that I wouldn't have brought the people in from Google, but I would have had a couple other people around me who had more experience. And um, you know, I think that that was a lesson and something I'm frankly taking into the Yahoo deal we're working on you know now. And so you other you also had a really tough challenge of this was kind of an uninspired company. They had gone through a couple of rough years, um, maybe didn't even remember quite what a good year felt like. And you have to come in and kind of get people to buy into your vision and get people excited again. So how do you go in and, and breathe some inspiration into a company that feels depleted? Yeah. So one is um, we, we did a 100-day process. And what I did was I traveled um, around the whole globe. There were about 10,000 employees at the time. I saw about 9,000 in person. And I had three processes I was running running feedback from the entire company and team, feedback from the management team, and then a list I was keeping of things that I thought we should be doing. And after the 100 days, we did a meeting at the Time Warner Center, and I put up three whiteboards. Um, on one whiteboard, I wrote back the results from the entire global team of what they think we should invest in. I put up a whiteboard of what the management team thought, and I put up a whiteboard of what I thought, and I flipped them all around at the same time. And each one had five things on them. Um, the, all of the whiteboards were identical except for one area on, um, on the whiteboard that I had flipped around on my personal side. Um, so the whole company was already kind of in alignment, and I think that got people excited. They weren't told what the strategy was. You know, they got input into it, and everyone was kind of on the same pathway and believing in it. And so down the road, uh, Lowell McAdam and you have a conversation, and Lowell is, of course, the CEO of Verizon, and Verizon ends up buying AOL for $4.4 billion. How did that conversation start, and how do you decide as a head of a huge company in AOL that this is the right move? 
Yeah, there was uh, two things quickly. Lowell is uh, an incredible CEO at Verizon, and, and um, you know somebody who really helped grow that wireless. Took it from wireline to wireless, and became one of the most successful companies on the planet. And in, in doing so, when I sat down with Lowell, it was one on one. It was at the Allen and Company conference at what they call the Duck Pond, where people kind of have meetings after the conference uh, is over. And essentially, I had a blank sheet of paper, and Lowell asked me a number of questions, just where the industry is going, what, what the structure was, what I thought was happening. And I basically drew him a diagram of what I thought was was happening. And we had, you know, talked for an hour or two about it. And then um, and then I, I didn't see him for, you know, months uh, afterwards. And then he called. We had talked about, like, maybe there's operational things to do together between the companies. And then he, he called and came back in in the fall um, and met with him, and we had more and more conversations. So over the course of time, there was like a sort of very natural progression of like where things were going. On the AOL front, what was happening at the same uh, time period was, you know, everything was going mobile and everything was going uh, data-driven uh, overall. And so I used to carry around a, a five-column chart from our board of directors meetings that I started every meeting with that basically had the strategic priorities for the company. And uh, mobile, video, and data were the first three things on that chart. And I knew we needed to solve that you know, issue. And Verizon at the same time wanted to solve their challenge of how do they grow services. So what naturally kind of grew out of that conversation was a combination of um, what Verizon needed to solve and what we needed to solve. And it didn't start out as an M&A deal. It started out as a big operational deal. Then it went to a joint venture. Then it went to a full company sale. But that's essentially how it started. And um, you know, at the same time period, there were other companies kind of kicking the tires on AOL, and we were meeting with people. But uh, the reality was Verizon, if you, want to, if you think the future is mobile and it's going to be about video and data, you know, hard to argue Verizon wasn't a great outcome for us as a business. And, um, and it's been a, I've been there for two years now. It's been a great experience. So one thing that's happening in the broader media landscape and digital in general is this term duopoly. Uh, a lot of media executives keep talking about it. It's Google and Facebook taking a ginormous share of digital ad dollars. I think um, there's a study that came out from IAB where it looked like 89% of the digital money was going there and 11% was for everybody else like AOL or Business Insider. Um, so how do you look at this landscape and what AOL's role can be, and just where is everything going, in your opinion? Sure. So for, first, I think you got to add Amazon into that list. And so I, I, the people who are Triopoly. saying, yes, people who are saying duopoly are, are missing one of the legs of the stool. I think Amazon's a real competitor uh, in the space. Um, I, I'd say uh, I'm probably a contrarian thinker on this. Um, I like the fact that Google and Facebook are getting more successful and getting bigger at what they're doing because, frankly, for us, we have a different strategy. So the stronger they get at what they're doing, I think it's going to be harder for them to adjust at a big scale to some of the things that we're thinking about um, doing. So it's, uh, you know, we're a big publisher. We, we're one of the largest publishers on the web with our content, and we're one of the larger ad players. So it's challenging. And um, But you have a choice. I'll give you the choice. You have a choice to being an industry that's growing at 15, 20, 30 percent globally. The Internet's going to double in the next five years in terms of people that are connecting to it uh, through mobile. Um, only 15% of commerce by 2020 is going to be on the internet. There's huge opportunity in front of us. So you have a choice as a leader and as a company. You can go tr compete in linear spaces or offline spaces that are really challenged, or you can go into a space that's growing and you compete compete against gold gold medal Olympic athletes. You know, t tough to say Google and Facebook aren't executing at the top of their game. Same thing with Amazon. 
but that sets an awesome bar for us as a company to kind of compete at that level and it challenges us creatively to try to get in that game so i i, I think from where we sit right now I choose the tailwind industry that's growing, and I would choose to have Olympic gold medal competitors because it's only gonna raise our game. And I think with industry, I have a whole viewpoint on industry consolidation, but I think you know, where the world's going, we're heading to a place where there's gonna be giant scale we've never seen before globally. There's gonna be a set of companies that have the capabilities to do that, and those companies are gonna really, really have the chances to build companies the size that the world hasn't seen before. Okay, well, for a final question, um, you've had to make a lot of hard decisions as a leader of many companies at this point, um, but you're also really personable and a likable guy. Like, how do you strike that balance between gaining respect from your employees, making the hard choices, and being liked and respected as manager? Yeah, I think uh, two things. I think it was advice uh, I got when I was growing up, and I give to my own kids, which is to, to thy own self be true. What you see is what you get. If you interact with me, this is who I am. Love me or hate me, and I think being authentic is important. The the second thing is um, I've uh, the mentor crew I have. I have a bunch of advice I always give to young younger people, but one of them is to build your personal entourage or board of directors. And I have five or eight people outside the company I rely on. Um, all of them, basically, I have one person, David Bell, used to be the CEO of IPG. Uh, he's in our office almost every day. I meet with him every Friday. And every Friday, he basically starts by telling me everything I'm doing wrong um, overall. And it's probably, for me, it's the most helpful meeting of the week because it always resets me back to, okay, what am I supposed to be doing as a leader? What's my job? Uh, what are those things? So I think that you know, if you're yourself and you're authentic and you're honest and direct, the other thing I've learned from David and people like Howard Schultz and Ken Chenault and other people like that who have mentored me over the time is just be direct with people. I, I did an all-company meeting with AOL and Yahoo yesterday. You know, I got asked if there's going to be impacts from doing the deal. You know, I said, yes, there are. That's what happens when two companies come together. I'm not going to beat around the bush. We're going to try to do the least amount we possibly can. But the bottom line is that that's part of that's part of what's happening with the deal, and I want to be direct about it. So that directness, I think, helps a lot uh, also in being honest with yourself. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate it. Thanks, Allison. Good to see you. You too. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes. You can also check out more interviews that we've done with the founders of Tinder, Bleacher Report, Warby Parker, and more.